1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current world events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, and now author of several novels, Mysteries, Um, murder mysteries. And uh, so we'll speak with Jim as well. It is August the 8th. And on this day in 1974, in an evening televised address, President Richard Milhouse Nixon announced his intention to become the first president in the United States history to resign. With impeachment proceedings underway against him for his involvement in the Watergate affair, Nixon was finally bowing to pressure from the public and Congress to leave the White House. By taking this action, he said in a solemn address from the Oval Office, I hope that I will hasten the start of the process of healing, which is so desperately needed in America. Just before noon the next day, Nixon officially ended his term as 37th President of the United States. Before departing with his family in a helicopter from the White House lawn, he smiled farewell and enigmatically raised his arms in a victory or peace salute. The helicopter door was then closed, and the Nixon family began their journey home to San Clemente, California. Minutes later, Vice President Gerald R. Ford was sworn in as the 38th President of the United States in the East Room of the White House. After taking the oath of office, President Ford spoke to the nation in a televised address declaring, My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. He later pardoned Nixon for any crimes he may have committed while in office, explaining that he wanted to end the national divisions created by the Watergate scandal. On June 17, 1972, five men, including a salaried security coordinator for President Nixon's re-election campaign, were arrested for breaking into an illegally wiretapping the Democrat National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C.'s Watergate complex. Soon after, two other former White House aides were implicated in the break-in, but the Nixon administration denied any involvement. Later that year, reporters Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward of the Washington Post discovered a high echelon conspiracy surrounding the incident, and the political scandal of unprecedented magnitude erupted. In May 1973, the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, headed by Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina, began televised proceedings of the rapidly escalating Watergate affair. One week later, Harvard Law Professor Archibald Koch was sworn in. As special Watergate prosecutor, during the Senate hearings, former White House legal counsel John Dean testified that the Watergate break-in had been approved by former Attorney General John Mitchell with the knowledge of White House advisors John Ehrlichman and H.R. Haldeman, and that President Nixon had been aware of the cover-up. Meanwhile, Watergate Prosecutor Cox and his staff began to uncover widespread evidence of political espionage by the Nixon re-election committee, illegal wiretapping of thousands of citizens by the administration, and contributions to the Republican Party in return for political favors. In July, the existence of what was to be called the Watergate Tape's official recordings of the White House conversations between Nixon and his staff were revealed to the Senate uh, hearings. Cox subpoenaed these tapes, and after three months of delay, President Nixon agreed to send summaries of the recordings. Cox rejected the summaries. In what became known as the Saturday Night Massacre, on October 20, 1973, in an unprecedented show of executive power, Nixon ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson and Deputy Attorney General William Broncos to fire Cox. Both men refused and resigned their positions in protest. The role of Attorney General then fell to Solicitor General Robert Bork, who reluctantly complied with Nixon's request and dismissed Cox. Cox, Less than a half an hour later, the White House dispatched FBI agents to close the offices of Special Prosecutor, Attorney General, and Deputy Attorney General. Cox's successor, a Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski, leveled indictments against several high-ranking administration officials, including Mitchell and Dean, who were duly convicted. Meanwhile, on November 14, 1973, U.S. District Judge Gerald Gusell ruled that Cox's dismissal had been illegal. Public confidence in the president rapidly waned, and by the end of July 1974, the House Judiciary Committee had adopted three articles of impeachment against President Nixon, obstruction of justice, abuse of presidential powers, and hindrance of the impeachment process. On July 30th, under coercion from the Supreme Court, Nixon finally released the Watergate tapes, On uh, August the 5th, transcripts of the recordings were released, including a segment in which the president was heard instructing Haldeman to order the FBI to halt the Watergate investigation. Three days later, Nixon, of course, uh, announced his resignation. Of course, a lot of these crimes uh, sound somewhat like it goes on every day in Washington, D.C. now. And again, it's uh, not the crime necessarily, but it's the cover-up, and that's certainly what Nixon was guilty of, is trying to cover up Uh, the uh, crime uh, at the Watergate. I'm sad to report that the Inflation Reduction Act passed the United States Senate on Sunday after party lines, after hours, I guess they pulled an all-nighter, with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, now having to cast the tie-breaking vote. It's a $739 billion spending plan the Democrats say tackles climate change lowers drug prices, fixes health care, and raises taxes on the wealthy. No, it doesn't. A report by Congressional Budget Office stated that the Inflation Reduction Act would not only lower inflation in, in any, uh, said it would not lower inflation in any meaningful way in the upcoming years. Of its $739 billion, $369 billion goes to climate change initiatives and $64 billion to funding for Afford- Affordable Care Act. Democrats claim the size of the bill's budget will re- be made up by 15% corporate tax, minimum tax to companies making more than a billion bucks. The massive spending package raises taxes for everyone except those making between ten dollars and $30,000 a year, despite Joe Biden saying he would not raise his taxes on those making less than $400,000 a year. Uh, Moody Analytics chief economist Mark Zandi noted that the bill would only marginally reduce consumer price index and an economic gauge on the price consumers pay for goods and services, and even the slim savings won't be seen until the latter half of the decade. And according to Representative Jim Banks, here's just 10 aspects. He cited 50 aspects of the bill that uh, make things worse. The bill uh, is a giveaway to green energy and would increase American reliance on China for rare earth minerals. It would also, the uh, legislation increases taxes just as the country is entering a recession. The bill contains budget gimmicks and fake offsets to mask the cost of the bill. we accounting for these budget tricks. The alleged def- deficit reduction bill would add $114 billion in debt over 10 years. The legislation would add $80 billion in funds to supersize the IRS's ability to audit Americans. This would especially harm middle class Americans. Ted Cruz said the budget, uh, the Democrats are making the IRS bigger than the Pentagon, plus the State Department, plus the FBI, plus Border Patrol combined. This is a massive power grab, he said. The Inflation Reduction Act also contains a socialist price control regime to aim at uh, to lower drug prices. It expands Obamacare by extending enhanced Obamacare subsidies. By the way, there's only about ten billion million people involved, enrolled into Obamacare. It's unbelievable. What a lousy program. It creates environmental justice. I'm not kidding. It really says this. Environmental justice, solar and wind capacity limitation programs to further the Democrat radical environmental justice agenda. $8.45 billion to further environmental justice in agriculture. $3 billion for the Department of Transportation to undertake projects to address racism in infrastructure i'm not kidding <laughs> and 5 billion to support 250 billion dollars in energy department of energy loan guarantees and loan ref- refinancing for uh, green energy infrastructure and remediation activities a new study at the heartland institute by the way shows that 96% of climate data used to justify the climate push is flawed I'm not kidding, 96%. Climate experts have consistently pushed back against climate alarmist narratives. Uh, Banks emphasized the legislation would not reinvigorate the economy as the uh, Penn-Wharton budget model found that the bill would not curb inflation. The Democrats were clapping like seals after the passage of the bill. And the University of Chicago professor Casey Mulligan has run the numbers, and he says, the study estimates that as a result of the uh, invest, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, or the IRA, real GDP per capita would be 1% to 2% less in the long run. Annual, annual, annual incomes would be reduced by $1,300 per household, of which more than $1,200 would be reduced income from work. I'm not kidding. This is all a result of uh, this study of the Inflation Reduction Act. What a timing! What timing they have on this bill. Well, needless to say, this is kind of a uh, Hail Mary, in my opinion, before the middle, midterms, just trying to get it all rushed in before they get thrown out of office. Unbelievable. Fifty-three members of Congress in the United States have joined former White House physician Ronnie Jackson in signing a letter which they demand that Joe Biden undergo cognitive testing and promptly make the findings of the testing available to the general public. The congressmen are all members of the Republican Party, and Dr. Jackson served as the White House physician for both Presidents Obama and Trump. And while you underwent your annual physical exam on November the 19th, you either did not face a cognitive test or the results were withheld from the public, Jackson wrote. White House physician Kevin O'Connor attested that you're fit to be successfully executing the duties of the presidency in a very superficial and purely physical manner. However, we are worried about your mental abilities, Jackson added. The letter detailed a variety of various reasons why the public's faith in Biden's cognitive abilities is declining and is citing those reasons. For example, 66% of voters think that he needs to go through some kind of mental examination. In addition, 56% of people do not have faith that Biden is both mentally and physically capable of carrying out the responsibilities of the president. This represents a 39-point swing from the month of October in twenty twenty. A total of sixty-four percent of respondents are uh, of the opinion that Biden has demonstrated signals that indicate he's too elderly to carry out his responsibilities as president, and only thirty-three percent of voters are happy with the job the vice president, uh, that uh, vice president Biden, is doing. The letter stressed that uh, the fact that even the New York Times has published a comprehensive study. Uh, exposing several worries that exist concerning Biden's mental competence. Specifically, the letter mentioned these concerns included uh, Biden's ability to understand complex concepts. The increased scrutiny uh, surrounding your cognitive state has been fueled by your recent public appearances during which you shuffle your feet when you walk, you slur your words, lose your train of thought, have trouble summoning names and appear uh, momentarily confused, all of which this exemplified during your most recent trip to the Middle East. Yep, <laughs> Keep the alive the truth and the horror, honor of Holocaust, among other things, unbelievable. Well, we'll see what kind of response the letter gets uh, for Bonnie Jackson and others, uh, probably uh, a deaf ear. This segment of the segment show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also, Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of historycentral.com. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service Reservations are needed. Check out the website at Lulubees.com and stop by Lulubees Diner open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulubees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Omakley and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lullaby's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Will you Forty-five,
0: forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I just want to remind you that the Collier Senior Center. You just heard the commercials uh, hosting a free technology seminar for seniors. It's this Thursday, August the 11th at 10 a.m. at 4898 Carnado Parkway. And you can find out more by visiting the website. Oh, by the way, no cost. You don't need to register, but uh, it's a great opportunity. 252-4541 is the uh, phone number. Coming up, we going to be visiting with Larry Reed. Right now we have with us Mark Shulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a multimedia website. It's terrific. HistoryCentral.com, great for kids of all ages, including you and I. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure, Bob.
1: Thank you, Mark. So much in the news. And let's start off with uh, taking out of the leader of uh, terrorist organization, Ayman al Zarahari. I, I know I'm mispronouncing it, but <laughs> I've tried several <laughs> That's times, nice or...
2: enough. It's okay. <laughs> no one, no, no one, none of your listeners is going to come back and say, you missed a certain vowel there. So we're fine. Right. Right. Um, So, look, it's a big deal in the sense that, A, it makes it clear that America does not forget and will eventually come for you, which is, you know, it's it's time. It took a long time to get him. Mm -hmm. Um, Numerous presidents came and went, and finally we managed to get the intelligence that was necessary and managed to get him. I assume he let down his guard to some extent by feeling that he was in, in Kabul, now under control of the Taliban, but... United States made it clear that um, downtown kabul is not without um is, it, America has eyes and ears even in downtown kabul under the taliban let's put it that way
1: yeah so, that's a, that's yeah. the good news the bad news of course is just an indication that the Taliban is in uh, Afghanistan where uh, you know the reports were that they shouldn't be
2: yeah, but we knew that was nonsense you know when when the agreement was signed by the trump administration that we would pull out and return from the guaranteeing the Taliban wouldn't come. I mean, who believed that the Taliban wouldn't come back? I mean, right. really, uh, that is, I mean, Al Qaeda wouldn't come back. Excuse me, the Taliban came back, obviously, and they allowed oh, Al Qaeda. Right, back. right, right. They're allies. Yeah. You know, that's uh, we we should not have expected anything else, and we didn't expect anything else. Obviously, this administration realized that this was going to happen, and, and the CIA did its job and uh, did what we were supposed to do. Yeah, and that's all good.
1: Supposed to be Uh, an over-the-horizon attack, so and and with no other casualties, no uh, collateral damage. No, no
2: civilians were no other civilians were killed. It was the perfect operation, and um, that's good. And we should be happy about it. Perfect operation, Let's put it that way. Absolutely, Um, a man who deserved to die Um, twenty years ago, but better better late than never.
1: Exactly. So, So, uh, what's uh, you're now? I should also report that you're in uh, Tel Aviv and uh, there's been uh, uh, quite a bit going on with regard to uh, attacks on Israel, and I understand right, there's a so ceasefire this began, now.
2: This began also in a similar vein. Um, what happened was, last week, Israel arrested one of the leaders of the Islamic Jihad. The Islamic Jihad is a Iranian-sponsored terror group that's, I won't say the most radical because there are dozens of terrorist groups, but probably the most radical of all of the terror groups. And they arrested someone in Um, the West Bank, Mm -hmm. and then the uh, Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip uh, said that they were going to retaliate and fire an anti-tank missile against the Israeli civilians in retaliation. And for a couple of days, the south of Israel was basically under a curfew. People didn't come and go, and roads were all closed. And part of it was a bit of a a feint, because after the Islamic Jihad refused to back down, Israel... um, did a very similar move to what the United States did and took out the one of the two military commanders of the Islamic Jihad in the first moments of uh, Salvo during during an attack um, and it also removed a number of um, missile-based uh, systems as well. The Islamic Jihad, which is smaller than Hamas then spent two days firing missiles at Israel. Um, a few of them went as far as where I am in Tel Aviv um, but Israel has the Iron Dome defense system, which this time has reached 95 percent effectiveness. Wow! And that, and then the percent that's not effective is most likely very short-range missiles right close to the border. But anything of any distance from the border, 100 percent, were all knocked down by Iron Dome. Uh, the only casualties basically were people running for shelter when when the air raid shelter announced it went off. You know that there's an air raid um, or missile raid in this case. Uh, some people fell on the way to running to get into shelter. That was the only casualties in Israel. Man. Um, Israel succeeded in um, eliminating the other major commander of the Islamic Jihad. Basically, the complete military leadership of the Islamic Jihad was eliminated. And as of last night, the ceasefire went into effect. Um, and um, this, little, this little two-day, I, didn't, I don't know what the right word is even in English to, to call it. It's not a war. It's an operation, I guess. Mm-hmm. the operation has come to a close. Um, no, no long-term solutions, but there's talk about a possibility coming to some sort of long-term uh, solution with with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. But it's not at all clear it's possible or not.
1: That's so interesting. I cannot uh, conceptualize the Iron Dome for some reason. It just—it's difficult to understand how this uh, operates. But apparently, it's just a missile system that shoots down an incoming. Right. It, it, right. I
2: mean, think of it. That sometimes it almost seems like it's a game. Right. And you see it on television, and I've actually seen it uh, not this time, but in the previous uh, time a year ago when they fired like 20, sh- 20 missiles on Tel Aviv and, you know, 30 missiles went up to intercept and intercepted all of them. It. It's Literally like one of those video games, you see. Yeah. Um, but it basically is an extremely accurate intercept, mid- something that originally people said was not doable. Think back to Star Wars. Of Ronald Reagan. It probably was not doable back then, but it is doable today thanks to computer technology and everything else. And it hits almost every single time the target, the incoming target. It only fires at a missile that's going to land in a populated zone. If it's going to land in an open field, it doesn't, uh, doesn't bother intercepting because it costs yes. money. Um, Israel is about to deploy within a year a newer, uh, the newest system, which is laser based. And so it will fire lasers at the incoming missiles. The tremendous advantage of that is it's very, very inexpensive. Currently, the Iron Dome costs a significant amount of money every time you fire a missile. at A missile it costs money. Yeah. Obviously, a lot less than if the missile would have landed and caused you know damage and killed people, but it still costs a lot of money. The, la- the laser system will cost like five dollars every time you shoot it.
1: That's amazing. I just so. uh, uh, and there was no shrapnel and no injuries because of falling metal. Uh,
2: there's a little bit. Words, one of the things they say is you, you need to stay indoors when, when, there's, uh, when the missile attacks. I mean, don't forget, usually the missile is intercepted before city and you know, over open fields. Mm-hmm. There have been a few cases of, of damage created by the shrapnel that comes down, but that's why people are told, despite the fact that our endowment is so successful, you still need to go into shelter because of the possibility of, of shrapnel. Mm. And um, it's caused a little bit of damage, but... Um, but basically not. I mean, That's amazing. It's an amazing thing when you think about 95% intercept rate.
1: And as I um, understand it, these there were hundreds of missiles fired.
2: Right. Three, 350 missiles were oh, fired. Unbelievable. Of which a quarter of them, by the way, landed inside the Gaza Strip. In other words, there were a couple of cases where there was a number of children who were killed.
1: And oh, my gosh. the moment,
2: Israel was being blamed, and it turned out, no, it was one of their own missiles that misfired. Huh.
1: Interesting. Wow. wow! What a story. And does this? Is, do you think uh, it sounds to me like uh, Israel won this round? Uh, do you think it can lead you know, to some that, some sort of peace? That is actually
2: the first time in a long time when Israel actually feels yes, actually won the round in the sense that it succeeded in in uh, killing the top leadership of this group called the Islamic Jihad, and there were no significant Israeli casualties at all.
1: That is fantastic.
2: Um, which is an amazing number. Amazing thing to think about.
1: So, Absolutely.
2: Um, you know I hope you know the u s is, is playing with iron Dome at this point in terms of acquiring it. It seems like it would be a good idea to me,
1: but uh, it seems like a no brainer especially the laser system that you're talking about
2: right, the laser system for sure that's you know you know i i I mentioned this before one of my great concerns in the United States defense establishment is that the development time is so very long of 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 systems until you issue a contract and then bidding on it and then the companies take a couple of years to develop and it's a whole process I mean it took almost 15 years to deploy the F-35 in Israel that same process is like two years Mm -hmm. and that's one of the advantages Israel has is the fact that between defining a need and being able to put a, a weapon system in the field is much much shorter yeah and the United States needs to find ways of doing that. I mean, they did it, obviously, during World War II. Um, but the peacetime army and navy and everything else has developed a system that just takes way, way too long. And so when you, by the time you deploy a system, it's, it's no longer state-of-the-art.
1: And uh, very costly as well. Right, uh, Mark, let's, let's, let's move to uh, Taiwan. I mean, uh, China's continuing a military uh, drills around Taiwan. What's your assessment of what's happened there?
2: Look, I think China is trying to show it's, it's upset in doing things. It's under some pressure from some of the Chinese nationalists to show how upset it is. But I think, as I said last week, I think the chances of them actually doing something are very, very slim. I don't think they want war. I don't think they're ready for war. I don't think it's in China's interest to go to war. Um, it goes against everything that the Chinese are trying to accomplish by becoming, you know, the strong Asian power, and not based on, I mean, a lot of strong military, but economically is, is the way they 've been able to to grow and become as strong as they are so i don 't think I think they 're playing chicken to some extent they 're trying to show that they 're serious but i don't i, I don 't think they 're actually going to um, to do anything and if you remember, I had the opposite view of Russia when it came to ukraine
1: yeah that 's such so, an interesting point of view you know a couple of related stories uh, are Apparently, there's some dissonance. There's 400 million people who've dropped out of or are encouraging people to drop out of the Chinese Communist Party. And I realize they're not communists, but that's what they call themselves. So, uh, so there seems to be continuing dissent and also the economy. Uh, more and more stories about how weak the economy has become in China. Any comments?
2: Right. Look, the, the underlying problem, which we've discussed before, is the demography of China. The fact that they're shrinking in population now, one of the things about any country, if you want to grow economically, one of the ways you grow is by increasing your population. Right. Whether it's through you know natural births or by immigration, both those things work to 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 grow a country's econ- economy. After all, if you have people coming, moving in, or being born, you got to build housing for them, right? I mean, they got to live somewhere, mm-hmm. and you can follow through all the all the aspects of that that builds an economy when you. are when your population is shrinking, it's the opposite effect. You end up with empty apartments, and you have no reason to build new new buildings because there's no demand. And suddenly you don't have people to fulfill jobs, and the price so it goes down, and so the result is that the cost of labor goes up because they're fulfilling each job. And China is at that point in the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States has avoided it over over. Basically, it's whole existence because of immigration. Right. Because immigrants both, the physical immigrants always come and they add to, the, add to the population. Plus, historically, the first and second generation of immigrants have more kids than Native Americans. Do. And Native Americans, not being, I'm not talking about the American Indians, but people who are the third, fourth, fifth generation Americans, or even longer, they tend to have less kids than the first and second generation of immigrants.
1: Right, but this this also fuels the uh, dissent, doesn't it, within the uh, Chinese population? I mean, their homes have going down in value. They don't seem to have equity in, a, anymore, in, in the homes that now don't, they can't sell. Uh, and again, just back to this four hundred million people who are dropping out of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, where's this all going, in your opinion?
2: I don't know. In other words, the the concern I have vis-a-vis Taiwan goes back to what we're just saying now, and that the, that that. She may want to change the the narrative to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't fully understand him, to be honest with you, because the Taiwanese were not really interested in being independent in, in, until he did what he did with Hong Kong. Yeah, and if you know, if he would have kept the the, the one China two, two, <laughs> two systems that the, existed with Hong Kong, Taiwan would have been happy to keep you know keep up going in that sort of way and. Maybe someday be part of China as long as they can maintain their own separate economic system. So I'm not really sure why he did what he did. It was really short-range short, uh, short range thinking on his part, let's put it that way. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes we assume that leaders make the right decisions or make rational decisions. Sometimes they
1: just don't. Yeah, well, and of course that, that, that what gets thrown into the mix here is this election that's coming up. I was sure that a a lot of his decisions are motivated by gaining uh, absolute control, really, of the Chinese system.
2: Right. Without doubt. But to what end? Yeah. Right? In other words, to what end? What end is power? Again, I'll assume something good about people, which is maybe wrong, but I assume people who want this sort of absolute power also think that they can accomplish Good things for their people. Mm-hmm. Whether we agree with, you know, whether you and I would think it's good things or not, that's a different story, right? Right. But, uh, but I have to assume these people think that they can accomplish great things for their people if they have the power to do it. Yeah. So what does he want to do?
1: Well, you know, the road <laughs> to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> that's <laughs> On, absolutely the case. Yeah, unbelievable. History
2: is full of that.
1: Absolutely, no doubt. So uh, l- let's uh, let's talk about Ukraine.
2: Okay, so I think what I've been saying the last couple of weeks coming true. The Russians are running into more and more difficulty. They haven't been able to move forward. They're running out of of soldiers. They've been recruiting in their prison population. Mm. They've been sending the Wagner Group, which is a mercenary group, to prisons throughout Russia to try to recruit people to fight on behalf of the Russians in Ukraine. Uh, You know, when you start bringing prisoners to fight for you, that's usually not a very good sign, to say the least. Right. so, and the Ukrainians are slowly moving to the offensive, um, particularly in su- in southern uh, the southern part of the country, uh, moving to retake lots of uh, the Kherson area. I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'm still fairly confident that over the next <coughs> month we're going to see a collapse of the Russians. I may be wrong, yeah, but I think we'll see a we'll see a collapse um, because you reach a certain point uh they've switched all the generals they've lost a lot of generals the soldiers are getting more and more frustrated and the ukrainians thanks to the western arms they've been getting have become much more effective um at hitting um the russians particularly behind the lines at this point
1: so, so wait, wait, there's a bit excuse me go ahead you, i'm sorry
2: you reach a certain point where soldiers say what am i doing this for yeah and um I think the Russians are pretty much there at the moment. We'll have to see.
1: So I saw a report that uh, right now there's been some sort of a rift between uh, Zelensky and Biden. A, Biden was upset with Zelensky. Have you heard that report? Any comments?
2: No, I did not hear that, so I'm not really sure what we're talking about.
1: Okay. Uh, so. And the other thing is I heard a report that, China is. A, this is kind of a controlled effort on the part of the, uh, a, a part of the Russians and that they have not— uh, unleashed their total capability in terms of war. This has been kind of a contro- controlled effort on their part. So, uh, and
2: that's Russian propaganda. Yeah. Why have Why have they not unleashed exactly their nuclear weapons and their chemical and biological weapons? Those are two things they have not used. Uh, but if they would use either of that, that would be a whole different ballgame. Let's put it
1: that way. Okay. So. Uh, so uh, this. God. So, is there any possibility of a of a some sort of a ceasefire and a peace in no. that area?
2: I don't see any. I don't see any possibility of a ceasefire. It's not. In, it's not. Well, the Russians would like a ceasefire and and keep the lines where they are. It's not in the Ukrainian interest, and it's not in the Western interest. It's in the Western interest to, for the Ukrainians to successfully push the Russians out. Hmm. The Russians, once and for all, have to understand that they can't they use force to change the borders of Europe.
1: So interesting. And, um,
2: well, see, um, you know, again, it's easy to talk about the Ukrainians doing things. It's not your life and my life that we're talking about, our children's lives. It's the Ukrainian lives. Yeah. So that's a, that's a difficult part of all that. Yeah, you know, just imagine the,
1: other... the uh, refugees right now, all the, the way the whole economy and everything has been so disrupted. Uh, it just seems to me there should be some way that we could find some peace. No, nobody's gaining from this situation, and the poor Ukrainian people are just being decimated as a consequence.
2: True, but again, the Russians cannot be allowed to seize territory just because they feel like it for, yeah. no, for no reason.
1: Absolutely. That's,
2: guess... yeah, and commit the sort of war atrocities that they've been committing.
1: Mark Schulman, again, yeah, forget about that. Thing. Yeah, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I do encourage you to visit www.historycentral.com. Great for kids of all ages, multimedia website. Kids will enjoy uh, history again by visiting the website. Mark, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so My much pleasure, for doing this. Have a great week. You as well. Thank you. Well, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed. Larry is the president emeritus of the Foundation for uh, Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website iamdesigntoheal.com. That's iamdesigntoheal.com. Or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit iamdesigntoheal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience.
0: Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse. Building a 44,000 square foot performing arts center in downtown Naples is going to be absolutely beautiful. And also bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now and find out more by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now, we have with us Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education.
3: Okay. Uh, The Foundation is headquartered in... Uh, sorry about my dogs uh, in the no, background. No there. worries. <laughs> okay. They're enjoying the show, too. But the uh, foundation is headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and our focus is on uh, high school and college students. We educate and inspire them in ideas of liberty and private enterprise and personal character. We do that through a very robust website, which is fee, F-E-E dot org, and also through events all over the country.
1: Fantastic organization having major positive impact on young people. It's so it's so inspiring to see young people getting excited about freedom, liberty, and personal responsibility. The website is fee.org, F-E-E dot org. Larry, you wrote a piece about Hannah Arendt, and I didn't know much about her, but I found it so interesting about her chilling thesis on evil. Maybe you can tell us about it.
3: Okay. Hannah Arendt. Uh, is a fascinating figure, Bob. She was one of the leading political theorists and thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, She wrote many books that are still very good sellers today, but she's best known for her coverage as a journalist of the trial of the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in Israel in the early 1960s. Uh, You might recall from her history that Eichmann uh, was involved uh, from the very top in the transportation of several million uh, Jewish prisoners to concentration camps during World War II. He escaped after the war, ended up in Argentina, Mm -hmm. and it was in 1960 that the Israelis figured out where he was and uh, abducted him and took him from Israel, I mean, from Argentina back to Israel. Uh, for trial, and he was ultimately found guilty and hanged. Mm-hmm. But Anna, uh, Hannah Arendt covered the trial, and one of the things uh, that uh, she's known for in that coverage is the phrase, the banality of evil. And what she meant by that was that as she sat there watching Adolf Eichmann uh, be questioned, uh, she was struck by how ordinary he seemed to be. Everybody just assumed he had to be some kind of a demonic monster, mm-hmm. and that that would be readily uh, visible uh, when he spoke, but he just seemed like uh, any ordinary guy and who claimed he was simply following orders, and, and uh, she didn't excuse his conduct, um, and she was glad he was found guilty, but she uh, talked about how um, uh, an ordinary person can be uh, motivated to do some very evil things.
1: And the reaction to her commentary was not positive.
3: No, that's right. She was rather taken aback by it, because uh, uh, many of her um, uh, Jewish friends said that she had betrayed the Jewish people. Uh, they thought that she was uh, callous in the way she seemingly dismissed Adolf Eichmann as ordinary and, and normal. Now, she used the phrase terrifyingly normal, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, they missed the point, because she didn't condone or excuse his complicity in the Holocaust. She had witnessed the horrors uh, of it firsthand herself. She escaped from Germany in 1933 after having been uh, arrested by the Gestapo for anti-state propaganda. And she certainly never claimed that Eichmann was innocent, only that the crimes for which he was guilty did not require a monster to commit them, that ordinary people uh, simply uh, in a desire to blend in with the crowd that's in charge and move up themselves Uh, are capable of some very uh, despicable things.
1: You know, I just want to underscore the point you're making because that's why this had such an impact on me when I read the column, is that uh, my personal belief is that human behavior is contagious. And uh, once you you see somebody who eats too much, other people begin to eat too much if they're in that same crowd, so to speak also but uh, hey courage is courageous when you see somebody who's being courageous sometimes they can rub off on others and all of a sudden that perhaps is how the american revolution really occurred but evil is contagious as well I and mean, you see people who are doing evil things and all of a sudden you feel like well that's just the way we do things here
3: yeah and how often have we all noticed uh, people behaving? In terrible ways, uh, simply because they want to blend in, uh, mm-hmm. they want to avoid isolation as a, a non conforming individual, how many times have we seen somebody doing harm because everybody else was doing it uh, i mean that uh, that happens all the time uh, in uh, various degrees, sometimes as uh, on the magnitude of what Eichmann did during the Holocaust so uh, that should cause everybody to pause and realize that uh, Human beings, given the right circumstances and motivations, and if they're not people of solid character, are certainly capable of some terrible crimes.
1: Absolutely. And my personal belief is that I think well, history will prove that uh, this whole pandemic thing and what happened with the lockdowns and the masking and everything like that is going to prove to be uh, somewhat similar to what Eichmann participated in in, uh, in Israel or in, uh, in uh, Germany.
3: Oh, yeah, you see a lot of public officials uh, you know, just wanting to blend in and get along with the others uh, who are doing the same thing or wanting to accumulate power personally. Uh, they have been doing terrible things to, to other people, and it's, um, it, it does harken back to the banality of evil that Hannah Arendt wrote about all these many years ago.
1: Absolutely. Uh, before I let you go, you also made comments in your column about the, the uh, similarities to Robespierre in the uh, Fr- french revolution and you w- want to comment on that
3: yeah uh, robespierre was a central figure during the so-called terror of the french revolution and uh it, it, he bears some uh incredible resemblances to an adolf eichmann uh, just a few years before the french revolution if you had met him you would have thought him to be uh, a smart up-and-comer articulate friendly guy Uh, He was an opponent of the death penalty. But once he got power, uh, wow, I mean, uh, thousands of people lost their heads on the guillotine because of Maximilian Robespierre. He seemed to be a totally different person once he was in a position of power because power corrupts.
1: That never happens. (laughs) (laughs) It's just unbelievable, Larry. I I remember being somewhat of a bundler for a a local politician here and really worked hard to get her in office, and we did a great job, and all of a sudden it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What have we done here?
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, how many many people have a neighbor that they uh, in the past uh, enjoyed as a friendly fellow and then... He gets on the zoning commission or a school board, and all of a sudden, he's got power, and he seems like a different
1: person. Uh, Again, underscores the uh, wisdom of our founding fathers, for sure. Uh, Again, the name of the column is Hannah Arendt's Chilling Thesis on Evil. You can find it at the website fee.org, F-E-E.org. Also, again, if you have a young person in your life, high school or college age, introduce them to this wonderful organization. Fee.org is the website. Larry, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington bureau chief. He retired just a couple of years ago. We've maintained contact. It's a really interesting guy. He's written novels since then. Uh, his first was Follow the Leader, a great uh, murder mystery located in Washington, D.C. Then he wrote a sequel, uh, Shake the Money Tree, and then a sequel to that. It's called No Problem. It was his most recent release, No Problem. Uh, We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: You have questions about your retirement? Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more. And download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. We have with us Jim McTagg, As I mentioned before the break, he's a uh, novelist. He's written retired uh, Washington correspondent for the... Uh, uh baron's magazine but also has written three great books murder mysteries uh follow the leader it's sequel shake the money tree and just out it's sequel no problem jim mctagg thank you so much for joining us here on the show
4: it's a pleasure bob yeah my uh catchphrase now is my life is murder but uh because uh, i'm obsessed with writing murder novels but i still follow uh, the interse- what I call the intersection of Pennsylvania Avenue and Wall Street, yeah. which I did for Barons for, for 20 years, uh, because, you know, uh, Washington, unfortunately, can affect our portfolios and, and uh, even our wallets. And uh, I think the new uh, bill just passed by the uh, Senate is uh, going to come back and uh, bite a lot of us.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, it's kind of interesting. We're seeing the mar- market kind of levitate of recent time. Apparently, July was one of the best market months in the market since like 1932. I did not realize that because of all the bad news we'd had up since the first of the year. But uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a real correlation between market performance and the economy.
4: Yeah, you know, it, it's it's weird. This happens about 85 90 percent of the time when there's a midterm. I, I covered this stuff for, for 20 years, and uh, you know what happens is um, the markets generally in the first half of a midterm election year are very volatile because there are a lot of uncertainties about what Congress can and cannot do, and and. and uh, generally people are unhappy with the president at this time regardless of who he is uh, although although biden is exceptionally uh, is is doing exceptionally well in getting people to dislike him <laughs> but, but what happens is you'll see in october the stock market will begin to get bullish because and it's regardless of who will win the midterm election, believe it or not. It's, mm-hmm. it's just that there's some certainty injected into the uh, economic outlook, and and the market should do very well through um, April and possibly beyond. But but you know, almost 90 percent of the time from October to April of a midterm election year, the market is up. So. We were down about twelve percent until recently for the full year. If you're looking at the S and P 500, I'm thinking that we'll, you know, at at uh, the beginning of next May, the market will have broken even. You know, so all of us who just sat tight and and rode this wild roller coaster, uh, you know, even though we've had upset stomachs uh, when the ride is. Over, Mm -hmm. we'll we'll be back where we started. That's that's my best bet. It could be a little lower than that. Uh, Now, in terms of the bill that the Democrats just passed, I think that'll help them marginally in the midterm elections with their base. Uh, But the bill is so complicated. First of all, I don't think the public generally is going to pay much attention to it, other than to you know scan headlines in their newspapers, and the impact. Of that bill, both positive and negative, will not be felt until at least 2024 at the earliest. It'll have no effect on the rate of inflation, which is the uh, major cause of uh, public uh, dislike of Joe Biden. So, uh, yeah, how will- long is it?
1: How long is it going to take, Jim, to get these 80,000 new IRS agents to come out and harass them? Harass us. It's got to take a couple of years to hire them. Train them, do all the things necessary to get them into the field um, that's my hope we can uh, get somebody in the office that make turn this thing around
4: uh, It would take a, a number of years. I mean the IRS does need some improvement, but it's primarily on the technical side. It needs uh, you know uh, more than agents it needs uh, really smart computer people right and it doesn't look like that's the kind of people they are going to be hiring so you know, you know to your point you may get the more harassment than service from the internal revenue service going forward and that will be a that will boomerang against the uh democrats the um other thing is uh, and we've discussed this before and your your listeners know this uh when government picks winners and losers in the economy like it is now uh generally it's capital well wasted you know you know and, oh, and the absolutely. washington post today which is a which is a uh unapologetic uh, democratic newspaper raised the issue of solyndra do you remember solyndra oh, of course there i do a,
1: 400 yeah. million dollars or some billion dollars something like that uh, wasted yeah,
4: so, you know so the washington post is is saying expect more solyndras it always happens so you know the 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 bill again is appealing to the democratic base um detroit already was moving towards electric cars so it hardly needs to give uh, seven thousand dollars per person to purchase an electric car it's just uh, wasted capital uh, and yeah. a lot of uh car companies that are marginal will be able to survive because of this and and so you know it's the old economic story of of the government propping up failing businesses and it's it's the uh, just the irrational uh uneconomical use of uh tax dollars
1: yeah, and how about getting rid of the racism in our highways? <laughs> and Billions of dollars put towards that racism and equity and all types of things, and it just it's uh, such a waste. And here's the other thing, Jim: with thirty billion, trillion dollars in debt. I mean, we can ill afford the this this wild extravaganza of spending. I mean, this is it's sooner or later it's going to cripple us. Yeah,
4: and you know, I said it'll help with the base, Marshall. You raised the point about. Uh, about the cultural wars and the silly wokeness, uh, I think the big issues in the midterm election first of will be the border. I mean, I think mm-hmm. Governor Abbott of Texas is is has has had a stroke of genius by shipping the illegal immigrants to uh, liberal states and, yes. and to Washington D.C. because that's that's really generating a lot of headlines and it's it's really amplifying the uh, confusion and, and the disaster at the border yes uh, so and uh, number two i think monkeypox is going to be a huge election issue if if that gets worse and the reason is it's a gay disease and i'm not i'm, I'm not anti-gay i'm just saying that if it spreads people will blame the democrats for not cracking down on a favored uh, minority within the party and, and, and saying, hey, let's let's alter your behavior for the common good. You know, if that doesn't happen, it's going to become an election issue. And then the third thing is the schools and the curriculum. Yeah. So, so uh, and abortion will be a huge issue. Uh, so the midterm elections, I mean, I mean, the Democratic base will be uh, whipped up and the elections might be closer than uh, we originally anticipated. There might.
1: Jim, are you there? I think it sounds like we may have just lost Jim. So uh, any. Oh, hello. Oh, are you there, Jim? <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. So uh, I'm just saying that the uh, midterms, you know, uh, uh, will whip up the Democrats, the issues like abortion, uh, education, uh, wokeness.
1: Inflation.
4: Uh, it, it may narrow the results, but we don't know that—I uh, still think the Republicans are going to end up controlling the House and Senate.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, a friend of mine who's very well-versed in these issues says that uh, the, the elections—people make up their minds a year before the midterms on who they're going to vote for. Uh, Meaning which party, maybe not specifically the candidate. But the point is that uh, the die is cast, according to him, that uh, these things have already been decided. So it's going to be a red tsunami.
4: Well, and uh, don't pay attention to the polls until after Labor Day is another rule of thumb that I have.
1: Very good, Jim. Kim, again, Jim McTagg, latest book. It's a great read. No problem. Great murder mystery. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly learned a lot. Uh, always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Bob Harden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Uh, that's one of the ways that uh, we uh, please our advertisers and bring attention to what they're doing. We couldn't do the show uh, without them. We have great guests for tomorrow's show, including Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. We'll visit with Boo Mortensen. St. Motley, the founder and president of Les Government, will be joining us as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.